This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, historian Dr Chloe Ward from RMIT joined me to discuss the latest in UK politics. This discussion takes place with England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland still in a strict lockdown due to the coronavirus pandemic, with COVID-19 cases currently up at about 14,000 each day. Then, I spoke with philosopher and scuba diver Peter Godfrey-Smith. He joined me to discuss in depth his new book, Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness. Peter explains how conscious experience evolved from animals in the sea millions of years ago. He introduces us to some of the fascinating creatures he meets on his scuba dives. Sponges, soft corals, banded shrimp, giant cuttlefish and hermit crabs. Then, finally, Professor Brendan Wintle, a conservation ecologist at the University of Melbourne, joined me to talk about the major recommendations made to the federal government from the Independent Review of Australia's Environment Laws, in particular the EPBC Act. We discuss whether these recommended changes, if implemented in full, will protect the environment. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm so delighted to welcome back onto the program Dr. Chloe Ward, who is a historian and a research officer at the EU Centre of Excellence, and that is based at RMIT University. And uh, Chloe is also the co-host of the Barely Getting By podcast, which she hosts with Dr. Emma Shortis, who chats on this show about US politics, but we are not going to America, which is what we did last week. We're going to the UK. And uh, yeah, (laughs) it's kind of interesting that the Trump legacy continues in the form of Boris Johnson, who, um, yeah, really is the, I guess, brother of Donald Trump in in some kind of way, um, in the sense that there's so many things that you wonder whether was intentional in terms of policy decision-making or unintentional or who knows what. And uh, he certainly doesn't seem to be supported by a particularly competent ministry. Um, At least that's become more and more apparent. And we've seen some pretty blistering attacks by journalists, even some interestingly unexpected journalists like Piers Morgan, who took down the school's secretary uh, on TV with his co-host on Breakfast TV, of all things. Um, So I'm very delighted to welcome Chloe back to talk about all of these things, particularly the coronavirus over in the UK and that harsh lockdown that they are still in. Um, Thanks so much, Chloe, for joining me again. No, thanks for having me on, Amy. It's great to talk again. And, yeah, great to chat with you. And obviously uh, we'll get through as much as we can. First up, I've got to say, um, having watched some of Piers Morgan's recent interviews, it's kind of surprising to see, you know, not just, I guess, The Guardian and um, more progressive news outlets like Channel 4 to be actually criticising the response of um, the Boris Johnson Tory government, um, particularly in relation to this pandemic, which has been lacklustre to say the least across the entire period of this pandemic. And certainly um, knowing people based over in the UK, as I know you do, you know, you hear about the fact that so many people are 
very frustrated, if not angry in some cases, about aspects of the response, um, the government response to this pandemic. So first up, um, in terms of the public discussion and debate about the um, performance of Boris Johnson's government in relation to the pandemic, not just his own performance, but also his key ministers, um, what... What, where are we at in that debate? Where are we at in the discontent that seems to have um, at least taken over a number of people I know? Yeah, look, I think that there's um, there's a lot of discontent and Piers Morgan certainly has emerged as one of the unexpected heroes of public discussion around COVID. I think I was I was as surprised as you, you are mm. um, to see him sort of emerge in the middle of the year as quite a strong critic of the government's response. So, yeah, there is a lot of criticism uh, there's a lot of, I guess, kind of mystification around why exactly the government has stuffed it up so spectacularly. I think the government is certainly hoping that they can recoup some of their losses because they have. we have seen a pretty successful rollout of vaccines so far, in England at least. And I think the other thing to say about the public criticism is that there, there's a lot of criticism of the government's strategy. There's certainly a lot of criticism of the results, which, you know, as of yesterday, I think was 112,000 people in Britain dead. But whether that criticism is turning into anything more constructive or indeed anything that would help the Labor opposition is definitely not, isn't clear at all. So while we have, you know, strong public criticism of what the government's doing, the Tories are still doing really well in the polls. They're consistently polling at about 40%. So despite the fact that the government has failed spectacularly, that's not translating into any gains for opposition parties. Mm, it's pretty shocking to think that, really. And also, the it's not just the strategy which, which seems to have been lacking, but also the communication. And, of course, the, those two things are very much intertwined because if you don't have a clear strategy or you keep changing it, then the communication is going to be inconsistent or unclear and people are going to start criticising you. But one thing that was quite apparent to me in one of the interviews, and I think it was a Piers Morgan interview, was about the fact that he was asking, and I think it was the health secretary, um, he was saying, well, can you explain why the UK has the highest death rate in the world? Like, per capita, I think it was. I, I can't remember the exact words, but he was basically saying, why are we leading the world in in these metrics about deaths, number of deaths um, for the proportion of our country? And, you know, what what's the government's assessment of the fact that that's the case? And uh, the answer was just, well, I don't know. <laughs> and he was saying, well, how do you not know? Do you know what I mean? This is a pretty clear and pressing question. So, you know, how how could a major, you know, secretary of a, a portfolio not know the answer to something like that, not be able to communicate to the public in a, you know, very high-profile interview some of these kind of essential parts of a pandemic response? Yeah, look, well, I suspect that the reason why they that minister said, I don't know, is because there's no, there's no truthful answer to that that doesn't involve an honest reckoning with the British government's record during the pandemic. And I think they've also found themselves in a very difficult position when it comes to the rhetoric and the, the messaging that they're putting around the pandemic in their response, because this is a government led by Boris Johnson that has, you know, I guess, 
pinned its pinned its you know its reputation on its claims to be to revive Britain's reputation in the world to make Britain a world beating country, and suddenly they are a world beating country, but for all the wrong reasons. So they simply don't have a response that wouldn't require them to, I guess, reflect and perhaps be be honest with the British people about how badly they failed them. Indeed. Well, I mean, one thing that they have been grappling with is the presence of the UK variant, um, which obviously originated in the UK, and also the increasing presence of the South African variant of the coronavirus, both of which appear to be more contagious and transmissible. It's still, the jury is out in terms of whether it in fact, is definitely more deadly, although if you have more cases, you're going to see more people hospitalised and more deaths. Um, but we have seen uh, essentially around 14 to 15,000 new positive cases per day. Um, the latest figures that I've just seen from Public Health England um, state that there were 14,104 new cases and 333 deaths within 28 days of a positive test reported across the UK and um, just nearly 12.3 million people have now received their first dose of the coronavirus vaccine. So with those figures and also having been in a lockdown for quite a while now, like how do we reconcile the situation? Um, and it's not just the UK, it's also Germany, as I mentioned at the start of the program, who I have been following closely and was actually really surprised at the fact that um, they had entered a harsher lockdown than the one they originally started before Christmas, and yet they still had similar figures, although worse daily deaths than the UK did. So how do we actually yeah, reconcile the fact that the UK is still in a lockdown, um, there, there is no necessary, like no specific end date right now that has been outlined, although Boris Johnson seems to come out semi-regularly to flag that maybe it, it will be soon. Um, maybe it'll be before Valentine's Day or after Valentine's Day and he's taken it back. So it all gets a bit confusing. But how do we reconcile these things that they're in a lockdown, businesses are closed um, apart from takeaway, food and essential shops. And yet really, um, although we've seen a decline, it's clearly not enough. Yeah. Well, I think I, to be honest, I think that the government is doing everything, everything, a lot of things wrong in this respect. So I said before that the vaccine rollout in England is going really well at this point. I think you said 12 million people have been vaccinated so far. Boris Johnson has, in terms of reconciling it, he has walked back on some of those, those fluffy statements about, you know, ending, ending lockdown by Valentine's Day or ending lockdown by Easter or letting people have summer holidays. And he has sort of backed away from that and said, yes, we'll be led by the science, we'll be led by the decline in cases. I think... The thing that they need to get in place, which is certainly a lesson they could learn from Australia if they paid attention, was that they need to have their test and trace system up and running and running effectively. And there's every sign that that isn't going to, that isn't going to happen. So from the start, test and trace has been outsourced to a lot of private companies on extremely expensive contracts, and it hasn't done its job. It hasn't been very effective. It's certainly improved over time. I think they're getting most results back within a day now, but there's been talk recently that as cases decline, they're actually going to reduce staff on test and trace. So 
the the obvious answer to the question of how they reconcile these things is to say, yes, they get the test and trace system up, up and running, they get hotel quarantine running, they have everything in place to manage the caseload as it comes down, but that doesn't look like happening. Mm. And um, you, you just mentioned their hotel quarantine and that was something that, uh, yeah, I had a moment of like, what world am I in? Because uh, we did see very recently that the UK government announced that they would be instituting hotel quarantine and up until now they'd really relied on people to go home and self-isolate um, and it's kind of like an honesty-based system um, and I know people who've gone over there and, and done that coming from Australia, and of course they have done the right thing. But there are and there have been a number of travellers coming into the UK ever since the pandemic began. And uh, people have, and we mentioned this in the last chat, you know, stated, oh gosh, well, you know, we are an island nation. Surely we could, you know, contain the virus given our geographic positioning and, and um, the positive elements of that that mean you have greater control over things like borders when the, when you're not landlocked um, by other countries. So it was interesting to see that they eventually decided that hotel quarantine was a great idea. And uh, I read articles saying that they had spoken to New Zealand and Australia to get their views about what a best practice hotel quarantine system would look like. Uh, but I was really surprised to hear that they were planning on um, getting or quarantining people from deemed red zones or zones that were um, hot spots around the world. Um, and so it wasn't necessarily a blanket quarantine, which it seemed to be at the start when it was announced. So I'm not sure if that's um, a case of poor communication or if it has actually evolved into something that seems less stringent. And we have seen criticism from the First Minister of Wales who said that he would actually do it in the reverse fashion and um, deem areas that could come in, almost like we have a travel, bu travel bubble with New Zealand, that um, the UK would be better to actually deem green zones or zones that are safe um, where travellers wouldn't need to quarantine. So where are we at with this hotel quarantine system um, and how has it evolved if it has at all and, and what's the assessment been as to whether this would be an effective mechanism to actually reduce cases? Yeah, you're you're right about um, the the sort of the limitations of the plans for hotel quarantine and how that has sort of it's had elements shaved off as the plan has sort of come into being. It's due to start on the fifteenth of February and it will be restricted to UK citizens and UK residents who are coming from those red zone countries. So so places like South Africa, places like Brazil. So it's a very it's a very limited plan. One of the surprising things about the hotel quarantine discussion, um, especially when you compare it to what we have in place here and what we got set up quite quickly with, you know, and admitting that there were problems that ensued from that, is there's a lot, there's always scepticism around hotel quarantine in the UK. So lots of people are asking questions like, oh, well, where are we going to get the hotels? You know, how are we going to get people on buses to get to hotels? Who's going to, who's going to pay for the hotels? How are we going to staff the hotels? So there's still, it's still very much in flux. Um, and I think that given the government, this government's record, we should also be mindful that they are kind of liable to, to do the minimal version of what, um, what is generally recommended and certainly what has been 
brought, you know, what, what's been borne out by the Victorian ex experience, for example. So we're going to see a fairly limited hotel quarantine system set up on the 15th of February. They're still sorting out the logistics and it's going to be very much focused on those hotspots. Right. So, yeah, that's probably more limited than even I expected um, to, to hear of. And also kind of surprising, really, when you think that uh, Victoria and obviously Australia, as well as New Zealand, have made those mistakes, have built up very you know rigorous systems that are world class. Um, you would think that given our very close connections and diplomatic relations with the UK, that we would be able to share some of that in-depth planning. And um, if that was something that was missing or that was going to take too much time, which is a criticism I've seen is, oh, we just don't have the time to build something from scratch. Well, yeah, I just wonder whether that's more of an excuse in the sense that um, perhaps they don't want it to be very extensive because clearly they would have access to some pretty excellent information from, you know, New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, absolutely. But that's, I guess, the missing piece that, I mean, we certainly have our equivalent in Australia, but they're much more powerful in the UK and that's the right wing of the Conservative Party. So mm. there is a cohort of, of right wing MPs, a lot of them associated with the, with the Brexit campaign, who have been who have been arguing all throughout this that we need to prioritise the economy, that Britain can't afford these really strenuous measures to contain the virus and that, we need, and that the country needs to open up sooner rather than later. And one thing you can't underestimate is their power over, the, you know, their influence over Boris Johnson. Also the fact that they certainly have a sympathetic ear in the Chancellor of Rishi Sunak. So, you know, Rishi Sunak, he, he, he holds the purse strings. Um, mm. in the UK. So there's those sort of internal dynamics in the Tory party that are really putting the handbrake on, you know, a, a, a sort of comprehensive and really effective response. That's really interesting that you mentioned the, you know, the ideology and that sway of the far right in um, the Tory party. And of course, Brexit really did stoke that um, for such a significant period of time in their domestic politics. But it also reminded me of a comment uh, that I just heard on the radio from the vaccines um, secretary or minister. And uh, we just saw that Australia said, well, there'll be um, a clear, an easy certificate that you can all access to say that once we eventually do get a vaccine and vaccines start getting rolled out, that we would have a kind of easy proof that we could show people to say, here, we've um, I've been vaccinated, these are the doses and this is when I had it. Uh, we've just seen that the UK has said, well, actually, we're not going to have vaccine passports or certificates. Your GP will know whether you've been vaccinated on their records, but there won't be something that will hand out to you that you can retain as proof of vaccination um, in a planned uh, comprehensive way. And one of the reasons, well, actually two of the reasons that they gave as to why that would not occur is that, quote, we do things by consent and it would be discriminatory. That's really interesting to me in the sense of this idea of liberty and freedom and needing to um, do the minimum and not place some kind of onerous burden on anyone um, even if it would be an effective mechanism and tool for people to have that proof at hand. What are your thoughts on, on that comment and what does that really reveal about the political culture 
in the UK? And is that kind of language um, something that resonates with the population in the UK? I think it's something they want to resonate. I'm not sure that it will in this case. So, yeah, when they say that, you know, this is about this is about liberty, this is about, you know, I guess restricting overreach of government into people's lives, that's very much, that comes out of the Brexit playbook, which, you know, I mean, to be honest, that, that rhetoric, it long predates the Brexit play, mm. playbook. It's a very powerful stream of, a powerful stream of thinking in British political culture, this idea of Britain as a land of liberty and where, you know, where the ordin- where the common man can, always, can, you know, always resist government overreach. I do wonder if this is one of the, again, one of those places where the government's rhetoric and rhetoric that served it very well during the Brexit debates is going to run against, you know, a, a social and political and a medical reality which is that, you know, the, the most effective responses to the coronavirus have involved, you know, the heavy utilisation of the instruments of the state, have involved measures of social control. So it's sort of a, it's sort of a debate that's bubbling away and I think it's potentially one that even the most powerful and historical rhetoric that, the, that, that Tories can muster might not be able to overcome. Mm. I'm speaking to Dr Chloe Ward, who is a historian based at RMIT, and we are talking UK politics. Now, Chloe, I'd really like to understand about um, some of the countries that make up the UK because we have Scotland um, and Wales and Northern Ireland and England. And interestingly, although um, these countries don't have like some kind of unilateral way of uh, taking substantial action over and above the British government in many cases, not all cases, um, and they do have unique functions that they serve locally. Um, But there has been quite divergent views from not only the first ministers, um, but also from their chief medical officers. And we have seen uh, divergences in terms of strategy and approach and preference and um, policy views on basically relating to the pandemic. And no doubt that's not a new situation, but when we are in, um, in a sense, a crisis, it becomes more apparent when there are, there are these divergences. What are your thoughts on how there have been differences in strategy? The you know, lockdown strategy is one example. Um, and do you think that's showing that there is greater tension or that there may be um, increasing tension between, you know, the first ministers and also, you know, number 10 and um, the overarching body of the UK government? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at the cases of Wales and Scotland in the first, really sort of heading up, heading into the end of last year, they both the first ministers and the first ministers in the um, sorry Nicola Sturgeon the first minister in the Scottish government and also in Wales they were pushing the national governments were pushing for much more stringent lockdown measures and that was a way you know both it was it was both a point of principle and it was them following the advice of their scientists as you said before. But it was also, it also enabled them to, I guess, store up some political capital, which it against you know the, the Johnson government, which is very closely associated with England. And it turns out in recent days and weeks that that's political capital that they need and that they're having to deploy now. Because one of the things I mentioned before is that England is doing really well and seems to be hitting most of its targets when it comes to vaccine rollout. 
Scotland and Wales are both lagging behind their targets. They're certainly not performing as well as England. So suddenly we have a situation where the, you know, the, the triumphs of the Scottish and the Welsh devolved governments seem to be almost reversed on themselves and suddenly England is doing better in one aspect of the pandemic. So we have, you know, this sudden defensiveness on the part of the Welsh and the Scottish governments. But on mm. the whole, I think... In Scotland, at least, Nicola Sturgeon is absolutely is still riding high, and we've talked about this before. Scottish the the cause of Scottish nationalism for Scottish independence has never polled better or more consistently. So whether this actually can translate into a full blown campaign and even a referendum for independence, that is one of the really live questions in British politics. Yeah, it's certainly been making the front pages of those more nationalistic newspapers in Scotland. And that's not new necessarily, but it is more frequent and it's being asked of Nicola Sturgeon more and more at her press conferences. And one of the other interesting points was the fact that there was actually a legal uh, a legal case in the courts, In um, I think it was the highest court in Scotland, looking at whether there could be a second vote on independence um, if Boris Johnson refuses to grant that vote under a Section 30 order for a referendum. And Boris Johnson clearly has no interest in Scottish independence. Uh, and we also saw the fact that the monarchy was planning on sending some royals over to Scotland to live so that they could boost their popularity and maybe prevent another tout at independence, which seems kind of delusional. Um, but what are your thoughts on the chances of this second independence vote? And are these the court cases and the discussions and the newspaper headlines more of a drama and a way to propel forward the cause rather than a real inkling that something is in the works? I think there is absolutely something in the works. Um, there's popular backing for a second referendum. Boris Johnson is enormously unpopular in Scotland, so the SNP definitely has kind of a, a useful... Um, he's, kind of, he's useful to the cause of Scottish independence. The debate over Section 30, and that kind of, you know, that plays into exactly, exactly the, the fundamental question of Scottish independence, which is, does Westminster have a, a right of veto over decisions made by Scottish government and by the Scottish Parliament? And it's kind of, you know, it's a, like you said, it's in the courts. It's a very sort of murky territory. People aren't quite sure, you know, could, could Nicola Sturgeon hold a referendum unilaterally? Would that be binding? Would that, you know, lay the basis for, for Scotland to uh, unilaterally break away from the union? No one's quite sure, but the political momentum is certainly with her. It's also a political prerogative for her because Sturgeon has done a really, you know, she's she has she's one of the politicians in the UK, and I say in the UK as a whole, she's one of the most popular politicians in the whole country at the moment because she has been seen to have managed the pandemic in in an extraordinarily competent way. But she needs to be seen as strong. She needs to win this fight. So it's also not only is it about the cause of Scottish independence, but it's also about her political future and it's a fight that she's not going to back away from. Mm. It is. It's really exciting and I'm really not surprised that Boris Johnson isn't popular in Scotland. It doesn't really seem like his approach to politics would fly in Scotland and it does seem that it requires someone who is upfront and direct and pragmatic like Nicola Sturgeon is and she has I agree, um, seem to have done a, a very good job. In comparison, 
with the Boris Johnson government. Um, let's move to Northern Ireland and Brexit, because um, as we did discuss last time, uh, there was a solution to the Northern Ireland um, border that exists. And of course, um, that, that was an issue because of uh, trade between Britain, Northern Ireland and the EU. And there was obviously um, a need to find a solution so that there wouldn't be a hard border um, because of obviously the Good Friday Agreement and the history of that issue is substantial and lives on today. Um, we have seen more and more reports about the difficulties of trade, particularly uh, I'm thinking of, for example, the British government or British exporters um, trying to send across goods to Northern Ireland um, in a timely fashion and also even engaging with the EU as well. And it seems like um, there have been multiple kind of criticisms, public criticisms, op-eds talking about this fact that in fact, there have been empty supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland, um, that there have been real difficulties trying to comply with the regulations, that even the seaports um, that were meant to be the workaround for a hard border, a hard land border, um, have really kind of become quite difficult and and there have been so many, I guess, different issues that have arisen from it. Do you think that that is an accurate summation of what's happening on the ground? Is this kind of criticism of the situation warranted? And what's your assessment of how things have been travelling? Look, I think it's absolutely warranted and not least because this was a completely foreseeable situation. You know, when they established the Northern Ireland Protocol and, you know, and the, the Johnson government was very quick to say, oh, this isn't, it isn't a sea border. There's no border between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland. That was just... I mean, that was that was untrue. There were always going to be forms to fill out and there were going to be checks that had to be complied with. So I don't think anyone should be surprised by this and I think that it is probably, it's a reflection of the, the I guess, the speed and the rush and the, you know, the emphasis on things like fishing and small things that meant that big things like how to manage, um, how to manage trade between, you know, trade into Northern Ireland they got missed and there weren't adequate preparations made, which is why, you know, the people who are losing out most of all from this are people in Northern Ireland who are suddenly seeing supermarket shelves where there's a lack of supply. The other part of this is that this doesn't reflect well on the EU either. So in the last couple of weeks, there's been a serious crisis in the EU, which started with the EU and its fight with AstraZeneca over, over vaccine production and supply, which ended up with the EU prohibiting uh, prohibiting import exports of, of AstraZeneca vaccines into Northern Ireland very briefly, which, you know, effectively that came back to that issue of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That was very quickly revoked, but that doesn't reflect well on the EU. It doesn't, none of this reflects well on Britain and it certainly is, you know, really harm, it, it's potentially really harming people in Northern Ireland. Yeah, no, it's um, it's something that, as you say, it could have been foreseen, and it sounds like it has really significant real world effects, particularly yeah, for Northern Ireland. Yeah, and poten and potentially explosive political effects. Mm. Like this is, you know, this is exactly the scenario that no one wanted, where it's going to start inflaming political tensions in Northern Ireland after you know what twenty three years of hard won peace. Yep, yep. There's uh, yeah, so much 
that needs to be done to rectify things. Do you think that the Boris Johnson government has accepted those deficiencies and is trying to figure out a solution? I think it has to. I think I think it has to, and I think this is, again, one of those places where Johnson's bluff and his rhetoric is starting to come undone. Um, I'm increasingly sceptical about whether he will be the Prime Minister who oversees that, who oversees the repair to that relationship. Interesting. So talking about, um, I guess, scrutiny, and this is traditionally what an opposition would do, of course, and we have seen here in Australia the Labor opposition not really be particularly effective up until recently, although they have seemed to make uh, more and more of an effort around the pandemic response and vaccines in particular. But I wonder what it's like in the UK, given that Keir Starmer took over from Jeremy Corbyn, so he is the leader. Um, there have been, I guess, various criticisms about whether he's really been sticking it to the Tory government enough because clearly, as you said earlier, the polls haven't really shifted in Labor's favour and, um, of course, based on their record uh, within the pandemic, it really should have made some dent. So what are some of those criticisms and do you think uh, Labor has been, I guess, capitalising on the fact that the Johnson government hasn't been doing well and have they been showing that they are an alternative government, even though it seems like um, it would be highly unlikely that they would be in government anytime soon? Short answer, no. Um, <laughs> I think, Keir Starmer, the, the Labor Party is still fighting internal battles from a year and, you know, six years ago. So it's still the people surrounding Starmer's leadership. And, you know, so Starmer is from the soft left of the party, but he has been supported by the right wing of the party. So people who, you know, are shorthand for them is to call them Blairites. And they are still very much focused on expelling those last remnants of the Corbynite left. And I think that that has perhaps led them to be more conciliatory to to. Boris Johnson's agenda, um, less focused on taking the fight to the government over, you know, what are really self-evident stuff-ups and also articulating an alternative vision for what Britain can look like after the pandemic. So, yeah, I think, they, I think they've completely failed in that regard and, you know, and it's showing in the polls. They still, they're stubbornly below the, the Tories' vote share. And now they're being kind of, I think, distracted by reports from consultants that are telling them the key to winning back the electorate, particularly in northern seats that were lost to them in the 2019 general election, is to, you know, wave flags and wear nice suits, which I think is a distraction from the real issues, which are about public service provision, which are about protecting and, and you know, advancing the British welfare state and rolling back, you know, the, I guess, the creep of neoliberalism into public services in the UK, which is in to a very great measure, um, responsible for the current crisis. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it, it is literally verbatim in that strategy document you're referring to that Labor should, quote, make use of the union flag, veterans and dressing smartly. That's yeah. the, the grand plan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, interesting. And Look, I'm a historian and this is, you know, this is this is probably what I know best, which is the yeah. 1945 general election. And that's the historical example that people will always call on when, you know, when one, they're talking about Britain emerging from 
asthma crisis and, you know, and then embarking on, on years of labour rule. And it's also what they talk about when they talk about how labour needs to be able to present itself as patriotic and it needs to be able to embrace the union flag. The first thing I would say to that is that times have definitely changed since 1945 and the union flag is something that is actually genuinely alienating to a lot of voters. It's quite, you know, you say that embracing the union flag is is about um, showing respect for older voters, for older white voters, particularly in the north of England. I think that, you know, it's also, it's also in a way, it's showing disrespect for, for citizens of the, of the UK who perhaps have more negative experiences of British nationalism. But also the thing about 1945 is that part of the reason why the Labour Party won was because they had a coherent, they had a bold plan for reconstructing the nation, for constructing things like the NHS and the modern welfare state. And that was that was the fundamental reason why they won that election, not because yeah. they, you know, dressed themselves up in flags and fancy suits. So there's yeah. a lot of historical amnesia when it comes to, you know, these these appeals to suits and suits and union flags. Mm, it sounds like there was substance and vision and policy now behind that. Yeah, and that's and that's increasingly going missing in the Labor Party. Mm, sounds like it's going missing everywhere across the world, <laughs> except in some cases New Zealand. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> look, look. But I do think that the UK is a it's a special case in oh, how yeah. not to handle the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I uh, I wanted to talk to you about it, because I think it has lessons for every country, including Australia, even though we seem to be doing well, I believe, you know, this is my view and and a number of other people's views, is that really um, it's because the states have taken up that responsibility and uh, that a lot of those responsibilities which people have pointed out, like quarantine, is actually a federal government response and responsibility and... um, However, we've been, I guess, left up to the states and their level of commitment, their chief medical and health officers and um, and their, I guess, uh, keenness to protect their populations and have those harsh lockdowns that are short and sharp, just like um, so many states have done, like WA and, of course, South Australia and Queensland. And as we've heard on and on. Um, similarly, just like Boris Johnson, Scott Morrison would have no interest in disrupting the economy um, and having these kind of lockdowns. And um, that's why he's so keen on a vaccine. So, uh, although we don't have one. So, yeah, I just thought the parallels um, are there, even though uh, there, there are very different outcomes. There's a reason why. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know to maybe to end on a on a more positive note, the one thing that they have done well so far is the vaccine rollout, mm. and that is that's a triumph for science-led policy, and it's a triumph for the NHS, which has been responsible for that rollout. It's certainly not a triumph for you know for outsourced private companies that have no expertise in in vaccine distribution, and I'm not sure that you know, if all goes to plan, and hopefully it will, I'm not sure that that could be clearly seen as a triumph of the Johnson government. Mm, It will be interesting to see how this uh, becomes a legacy or not and in what light that legacy is. Uh, Thanks so much, Chloe, for joining me today. It's been so wonderful to chat with you and catch up and delve really deeply into these issues over in the UK, which, as I said, seem to have lessons for everyone. Um, And I do hope that things improve at least so we'll have some more good news to talk about next time we chat. Yeah, I certainly hope so too, Amy. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the show Peter Godfrey-Smith, who is a professor in the School of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Sydney. And Peter is the author of many books, including uh, the best-selling book, Other Minds, The Octopus and the Evolution of Intelligent Life, which was shortlisted for the 2017 Royal Society Science Book Prize. Uh, Peter has also written other texts, including Theory and Reality, An Introduction to the Philosophy of Science, as well as Darwinian Populations and Natural Selection, which won the 2010 Lakatos Award for an outstanding work on the philosophy of science. And today I'm going to be speaking with Peter about his new book that's just recently been released. It's called Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness. And it's out through William Collins, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And uh, I welcome Peter now and thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, Peter, I've certainly come across your work before, particularly Other Minds, and I know that octopuses hold a great interest and curiosity for many people, obviously, because they're so visually distinct and interesting, but similarly, because their behaviour, as we might come to understand, is very interesting and complex. And that's something that you yourself explore in great depth in Other Minds, Um, but you also do pick that up in this book. First up, though, I'd love to get a sense of your particular scholarly interests in philosophy and how that has been matched up with your interest in diving and um, your interest in understanding such creatures like the octopus, but also, uh, for example, the giant cuttlefish. Well, for a long time, I worked in a mixture or a combination, rather, of philosophy of biology which is a part of the philosophy of science, and philosophy of mind, uh, which is concerned with trying to understand how the mind might fit into the world as a whole. I worked on those two areas, and there was always some connection between them. But one connection that I hadn't made was a connection to some particular kind of animal or some particular kind of organism. Uh, Like a lot of philosophers, I approached it all in a somewhat abstract way. And this changed when I began to spend a bit more time in the water uh, about 15 years ago now. So I was working in the US. I spent most of my career working in American universities and began coming back to Australia, to Sydney specifically, a bit more often. And although I'd always done a little bit of scuba diving, I began to do more and in particular began to spend some time in a marine reserve just north of Sydney, the, the Cabbage Tree Bay Reserve, uh, near Manly, essentially. And there I came across giant cuttlefish and after that octopuses and began to make some connections between firstly the general questions about biology I'd been interested in, secondly questions about what kind of thing a mind is and what kind of thing experience is, And thirdly, just what it's like to be around these animals and what these particular kinds of creatures are like. 
Uh, so it was really around that time that I began to knit them all together. And the book Other Minds and then the book Metazoa came out of that, out of that knitting together. And what in particular struck you about the giant cuttlefish and how they behave? It was, it was a really intense experience. I'd sort of bumped into them once or twice in the water before, but then uh, at Manly, you know, quite some time ago now, I met a couple of individuals who had a combination of two features. Now, firstly, it's, it's probably worth describing what these animals are like for those who haven't come across them. They're big, first of all. They can get up to three feet long, look a little bit like an octopus attached uh, to a turtle, roughly speaking. And they can change colour in the most extraordinary ways. Uh, They're really the colour change champions, I would say, of the animal kingdom. They can change their colour in less than a second and can produce uh, pretty much any any color. So their body is a is a huge video screen. And that when I when I began to come across it in the water certainly made an impression on me. And the second thing that made an impression was the fact that in some cases, not all, they seemed as interested in me as as I was in them. They're, they're quite engaged and curious animals uh, when they encounter divers. In some cases, not always, not all individuals, but some of them do seem to have a kind of interest in the foreign bodies that we are, just as we have a kind of interest of that sort in them. And in terms of cuttlefish, giant cuttlefish in particular, are they a cephalopod as well as octopus? Yes. So giant cuttlefish are more closely related to squid than to octopuses, but those three are all fairly closely related. So the, the cephalopods... That's a group of mollusks, which includes those three pretty well-known animals, plus one or two others. Also the nautilus, uh, which has a shell, an external shell, unlike octopuses and giant cuttlefish. And there were many more in the past, but those are the most conspicuous living representatives of this this kind of odd experiment within the, the mollusk part of the animal kingdom. And it does remind me of a a section in the chapter on octopuses when you were discussing the behaviour of cuttlefish and that, for example, they're often quite aware of other beings, including other humans. Um, And when they were in a marine biological laboratory in Massachusetts, they had actually been kind of aware of, I think it was one of the scientists, and they'd actually done this like playful game, I guess, from our perspective, where they were shooting or squirting water at the person when their back was turned, but then, you know, going back to the bottom of the tank when the person turned back around again. And that's a kind of thing that humans would be very intrigued by and see themselves in behaviour like that. Yes, it's, it's a lovely story. There are lots of stories like this with octopuses. Plenty of people who keep octopuses have claimed that when your back's turned, you might get drenched uh, with a squirt of water. And also that some octopuses take a, either a liking or a dislike to some particular individual human. So if there, are, if there are people who give them food, as opposed to people who come to sort of bother them and clean the tank, they'll often be treated quite differently. Now, in the case of octopuses, it did turn out that there was a real kind of memory for individuals present. There was a nice experiment done a few years ago by Roland Anderson and Jennifer Mather, where they 
worked out that octopuses could actually learn to distinguish between individual humans, even when they were wearing the same clothes. So octopuses have a bit of a track record in this. I was very struck to learn, though, that cuttlefish, as you say, have that kind of almost playful engagement with humans as well in captivity. The guy who told that story, Brett Grassi, he's the guy who runs the cephalopod tanks and lab uh, out in Massachusetts at Woods Hole. So he knows a lot about these animals. He's, he's been around more cephalopods than just about anybody. And he reckons he's come to think that those little cuttlefish really have a, a, a quite, quite complicated engagement uh, with the people around them, as exhibited by that uh, habit they have of squirting people when their backs are turned. And do you think that cuttlefish, for example, perhaps wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with humans or perhaps humans wouldn't have the opportunity to interact with cuttlefish to the extent that we do with um, mammals, for example, on land? And is that why perhaps we haven't understood or appreciated some of these behaviours in cephalopods, for example, and only really in more recent times? I certainly think that. In the case of cuttlefish and giant cuttlefish in particular, it's really surprising how little is known about these animals. Uh, They're not studied very much. There are some people who study them, uh, a couple of people in Australia, Alexandra Schnell, for example, who's uh, pushing that work ahead quite uh, vigorously. But, you know, you could list the number of people studying them on on, on one hand, I would say, and there's been just a, a real gap in our knowledge In the case of birds, there are countless amateurs as well as many professional biologists observing every nuance of their behaviours. In the case of octopuses, they've been a lab animal, both for good and for ill, for quite a long time. There's been a lot of neuroscience and laboratory work done on octopuses. But octopuses are very awkward to study in the wild because they're so elusive they're so, they're so good at hiding from you. They never do what you want them to do or they're never where you want them to be. And in the case of cuttlefish, there just seems to be in this gap. There's just been very little work done on them. And they are a truly extraordinary animal, which is under our noses here in Australia, has been under our noses all this time. Mm, yeah. Reading about them really made me want to start scuba diving because <laughs> all of your stories about um, these wonderful creatures just sound so fascinating. And also the fact that, as you say, a lot of them have individual variations in their temperaments. And so they're not a kind of homogenous group of species in a sense. They have individual differences that uh, we human beings would be expected to have. Yes, and that's true in two senses. Uh, Firstly, from one species to another within octopuses, there's enormous variation. And when scientists spend a bit of time around more than one species, they often are quite struck by how different they are. David Scheel from Alaska is probably the biologist who I collaborate with mostly, and he's an expert on the giant Pacific octopus, these enormous 100-pound octopuses that hang out in cold waters, essentially up around Alaska, Washington State, places like that in the US. And he now takes a strong interest in our local octopuses as well, especially the Sydney or Gloomy octopus, which also is down in Victoria. Um, And David was out here a few years ago getting to know them and was involved in a project that involved catching and then releasing some 
catch them, tag them, and release them. And he was amazed at how how pugnacious our octopuses were and how physically strong they were, uh, how acrobatic, even compared to octopuses he'd come across before. So he he said to me at one point that Australia has ninja octopuses, <laughs> kind of martial arts exponents. So there's that fact. And then there's, I suppose, the more surprising fact that even within a species, you can have considerable variation between one individual and another. Well, I say it's surprising, but in a way, when I say that, I have my biologist hat on because individual personality is regarded as fairly special, Mm. as something to sort of look for rather critically uh, within behavioral biology. But from the point of view of someone who just hangs out with animals, either with their pets or with farm animals or with, with other sorts of animals, of course, the idea of different personalities is not particularly surprising. And in retrospect, it would be odd if there were all little carbon copies of each other with respect to their behavior. Octopuses, though, and giant cuttlefish, it's probably fair to say, have a kind of specialness in their level of difference from one to the other. So you can encounter you can encounter octopuses or cuttlefish of the same sex, the same species, same age, you know, in the same waters, and one of them will treat you with a kind of engaged curiosity. Uh, one might try to eat you. Another one might treat you with a kind of absolutely perfect indifference. You know, a kind of studied refusal to admit that you're there at all. And these all just seem to me to be individual quirks of behavior, most likely. I think that's, I think that's just how it is with these animals. Well, it is interesting in that, in that regard and, and also interesting when we're looking at this new book. I want to particularly ask how you got from studying the octopus in great depth and thinking about it in great depth from this philosophical perspective but also from your own personal experiences, I guess, engaging with them and also observing their behaviour up close and at a distance. So how did you get from that book to this new book, Metazoa, in an intellectual sense, what kind of issues were you thinking through that you felt could be explored in new ways in this new book? The feature that both ties the two books together and also marks the distinction between them is the the tree of life, the genealogical tree of ancestry and descent that links all life on earth and in particular all animals on earth. Uh, If you think of yourself in relation to any other animal, living or dead, or in fact, any other living thing, living or dead, if you go back far enough in time, you'll get to a common ancestor, something that was a a great, 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 great grandmother or grandfather of you and also of that other animal, whether it be a dog or an ant or an octopus or whatever. And the book Other Minds was organized around a particular feature of the tree of life, which is the extraordinary depth in time of the branching point that leads on one side to us and on the other side to octopuses. So, you know, you and an octopus have common ancestors, but in order to find a common ancestor or to find the most recent common ancestor of you and an octopus, you've got to go back about 600 million years, a really long time, not 
not a long time in the history of life as a whole, but a very long time in the history of animal life. Animals hadn't done that much before. There was something alive at that time, 600 million years ago, a little flattened worm possibly, that lived in a population and divided into two, the population, not the individual worm. And then you had evolution proceeding down two different paths, lots of things happening, all sorts of novelties arising, extinctions. And eventually, on one branch of that fork leading from the worm, there's you. And on another branch leading from that fork, there's the octopus. So that kind of depth of the common ancestry between you and octopuses and other cephalopods was the structural feature that guided the first of these books, Other Minds, where a special feature of a situation is that the branching is so deep in time, but octopuses are so complicated behaviorally and very likely, I think, they have experiences. They experience their lives just as just as we do. So they're a kind of independent evolutionary road or experiment in the evolution of complex behavior, having a mind, having experience. So that, that was what organized the book Other Minds. Then once one has that picture of that particular part of the tree of life in one's mind, it's natural then to look at more of the tree, to think about all animals, to think about the animal kingdom as a whole. The title of the book, Metazoa, refers to this. So the word, the word Metazoa is an old-fashioned word for the animal kingdom, roughly speaking, an old 19th century word for all of the animals, the animal kingdom. And the point of the book Metazoa is to trace the historical paths that connect not just us and octopuses, as in the earlier book, but us and all sorts of different animals. What unifies them genealogically, how they came to look so different and live so differently. So the aim is to sort of trace all those paths, but also to do that with a particular project in mind and a particular question in mind, which is how did it come to be that in animals, at least in some cases, you have an evolutionary transition that produces subjective experience or consciousness in a broad sense of that term. How did it come to be that a process of biological evolution with this tree-shaped structure gave rise some number of times? I mean, that's one of the big questions in the book. How often did it happen? Some number of times to animals that are conscious. Absolutely. Well, Maybe we could define and characterize what we mean by consciousness, because at the beginning of the book, you do start to broadly define some of the terminology that you'll be using, but also the limitations of the English language um, and scientific and philosophical language that we're using. So perhaps before we move into this in more depth, we could get a better understanding of the concepts that you're using and and how you define them, particularly the approach that you're saying that you're taking in the mind-body problem and looking at it in a biological sense. So yeah, I'd love to understand more the kind of philosophical underpinnings and the philosophical terminology that you're utilising. The mind-body problem in a broad sense, is just the problem of how minds can fit into a physical world, how they relate to bodies, where they're found. 
And there are different aspects to that. These days, today, the particular side of that question or family of questions that's taken to be most difficult and in some ways most important is how experience comes to exist and how there can be a a physical or material basis for that thing. Experience in the sense of felt experience or subjective experience. Now, a minute ago, I used the word consciousness, and that has become a common way in the literature of talking about this side of the mind-body problem. The word consciousness is understood in a very broad way where anything, be it an animal or a plant or a computer, anything is conscious in this broad sense if it feels like something to be that system or that that being, that animal or that computer, whatever it might be. The presence of feeling of any kind is taken to be sufficient for the thing being conscious. Now, I, I admit that that terminology has never sat 100% comfortably with me. And in some ways, it's a, it's a shift in the way people talk. The word consciousness, to me and to many people, suggests not just the presence of feeling of some kind, but a particularly complicated or sophisticated form of experience. And I think that's in some ways a very natural, a very natural way of using the word conscious. But it's not the way that the literature and the debates use the word mostly at the moment. The word conscious is understood in, a, in this very broad way. So, for example, suppose you look at some squid in the water swimming along and, you know, they're startled by you and, and they, they dart away. And you wonder to yourself, well, did it feel like something to have that moment of startledness and to perceive me and to react in the way they did? Was that experienced by the squid rather than just a kind of mechanical process that happened without being felt. That, in a way, is the big question in this area, and that's a a fairly good way, I think, of thinking about the question that guides the book Metazoa. And that question would now very often be expressed by asking, was the squid conscious? Was there consciousness in the squid? Now, when I say that, if you think, well, the word consciousness suggests not just feeling but a kind of maybe a kind of here I am explicit sense of oneself or something like that if the word consciousness suggests that then I I sympathize because I I think in some ways it's a bit unfortunate that the word has been has had its meaning broadened in that way but it has it, it has has its meaning broadened in that way so the questions addressed in the book would often be expressed by asking where did consciousness come from? Which animals are conscious? Are plants conscious? Did consciousness arise just once in evolution or half a dozen times or, or, or more than that? Those are the questions, and they're equally well expressed by saying, did felt experience arise just once? Which animals feel or experience their lives rather than just having things happen? Uh, what kind of evolutionary process gave rise to experience? This is all different language for asking essentially the same question. Absolutely. Well, perhaps I could also um, trouble you to explain to some of us who perhaps haven't come across it before what materialism means because you do bring up uh, materialism and a couple of key philosophers and the previous debates that we've seen about um, duality and uh, materialism and how that connects into this discussion. 
Yes. Materialism is it's also a bit of a controversial word these days. Uh, what it refers to basically is the view that all there is in the universe is a world of, okay, and here, here is why the word can be a bit of a problem, a world of matter and energy and the sorts of things that are at bottom or fundamentally physical goings-on. And those physical goings-on give rise to the things that you see in chemistry and biology and, according to materialism, everything else as well, all the, all the mental or psychological phenomena along with those. The word materialism is a standard and fairly old word for a view of the universe, a view of nature, in which everything that exists is at bottom physical in the sense of it being some kind of arrangement of matter and energy, particles, chemicals, things like that. And in particular, there's no kind of addition of the kind that a soul would be or an immaterial god or spirit or something like that. It's the idea that all of the things that we think of as psychological phenomena, including conscious experience, can ultimately be explained in terms of the workings of biological systems, which are physical at bottom. Now, the word materialism, I said, is a little bit misleading because it suggests that there's just matter rather than matter plus energy and all sorts of things that are physically real but don't fit straightforwardly into a kind of intuitive picture of what matter and the material is. So the word physicalism is sometimes used instead of materialism for essentially the same view, the idea that there are no soul-like or mind-like extras Everything that exists is some kind of arrangement of the physical. I prefer the word materialism for a, a couple of reasons, but it's fine also to use the word physicalism. The main opponent to this view in current discussion, or well, I guess there are several main opponents. Historically, the main opponent has been various kinds of dualism, the idea that there's the physical or material world, and that's one thing, but there's also in the universe some kind of mental or spiritual or psychological addition, which is not merely an arrangement of the physical. So dualism is the idea that there are two fundamental kinds of ingredients in nature. You might also be an idealist and think that rather than trying to explain everything in terms of the physical or material, ultimately the universe as a whole is, is mental or ideal or spiritual and what we think of as the physical is a consequence of some kind of arrangement in some kind of experiential fundamental reality. There aren't too many idealists around these days. There are a few other positions, but I see my main opponents or the main dialogue is probably a better word than to use here of an opponent. The main dialogue going on as one between views that think that the material is ultimately all there is and the mental can be fitted in, as opposed to views that think that there has to be a kind of duality or a cleft or a basic divide between two totally different ingredients in the universe, one material and one mental. And so in terms of materialism and your 
understanding of it and thinking around it, does that mean that the way that thoughts arise and that we experience certain sensations, and obviously our brain is plays a role in that, does that mean that in your thinking and materialists, uh, materialists thinking of it, that those types of processes and thoughts and sensations could be put down to things like neurons and neurotransmitters and, you know, the nervous system, for example, is that the physical element that we're referring to and how that brings in the psychological or mental aspect? Yes, that's basically right. And that is a bit more controversial than it might initially sound. I think that once you're a materialist, you've then got to work out which kinds of physical things are the sorts of activities that are also thoughts and experiences and essentially brain processes, brain activities, the goings-on within nervous systems are the obvious candidate and also the candidate that I prefer. Now, the, the part that's a bit more controversial concerns whether you could have experiences that are material in character but have a totally different basis, have a different kind of hardware than the hardware seen in the brain. And the obvious example to think about here is some kind of future AI system or robot that was so complicated in its workings that although made out of very different stuff, it also had what it takes to have experience. It would be a conscious system as well. I'm more sceptical about many of the claims that people make about the kind of ease or naturalness or inevitability of future artificially conscious systems. I'm more sceptical about that than a lot of people who write in this area. I tend to think that nervous systems and brains really are special in this connection. And one of the things that writing this book led me to was a view like that. I mean, as I wrote it, and learnt more and more about our current view of what nervous systems are like and what they do, I came to think that they do things that would be very hard to replace, very hard to substitute some other, uh, some other process for. Mm, well, from a, a layperson's perspective, that um, intuitively makes a lot of sense to me as well. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM. Now here is that second part of the interview, the long scuba dive with Peter Godfrey-Smith, a philosopher who I'm speaking with, and the book is called Metazoa, Animal Minds and the Birth of Consciousness. And having read this book and going along on the intellectual journey with you and starting with organisms like the sponge, for example, and then seeing how things have evolved and we're starting from a very, very early point in the beginning of like living organisms, but you kind of take us through those scientific features, these key features and what these organisms have and don't have and then evolve to have. So I would like to ask about these different uh, organisms and species that you do eventually explore in great depth. And first up, from a, a kind of big picture, top-down perspective, why are you focusing so much attention to the ocean, to sea creatures? Why are they so particularly special and pertinent to this exploration? They're particularly special and pertinent because all of what I think of as the fundamental evolutionary processes here, all of the things that laid down the basics 
when trying to think about the evolution of the mine, those, those events all happened in the sea. They all happened before any animals had come up and begun living on land. It's not certain that life itself evolved in the sea, but it is pretty certain that animals came to exist first in the sea. And from there, that nervous systems evolved in the sea, eyes, uh, the kinds of bodies that can move through the environment and manipulate things and, and you know, behave in complex ways, bodies of that kind evolved in the sea. The basics that were laid down that I think of as sufficient to explain the origin of experience, those basics were laid down in marine evolution. And as a consequence of that, it's natural in the book to go on a kind of journey. And the book, in some ways, is organized as if a person, the reader, was on a single long scuba dive, uh, encountering one animal after another. And as we encounter various animals, all of them marine, until the very last chapters, what we're seeing is present-day indicators of some of these very important early evolutionary events that gave rise to eyes and bodies and brains and nervous systems, all the things that matter. And as you say, we start with a sponge. Sponges are interesting because they are animals. They're very far from us on the tree. Uh, they may be of living animals, the furthest of all animals from us with respect to their gap from us, the, the depth in time to which you must go to reach a common ancestor. So they are animals, but they don't have nervous systems. Uh, they're one of the few animals that don't have nervous systems. And when you, I mean, hangouts a bit of an odd word to use about <laughs> sponges, but when you spend time with sponges, you are spending time with, uh, you're, you're seeing what an animal can be like that has no nervous system at all. And they do have invisible, quiet processes. They can sense things. They have some very quiet and hard to discern behaviors. They filter water and they change how they do that. But they're not tied together in the way that other animals are and they can't act in the way that other animals are. So after we spend some time with a sponge, the next animal that is instructive to spend more time with is a coral. Uh, corals and their relatives, anemones and jellyfish and so on, are members of a group that do have nervous systems. So a coral is an animal with a nervous system. When you look at a coral, well, when, when you look at a coral, you're mostly looking at a colony of, of, of many, many thousands of little animals. But they all have their own nervous systems and they have muscle. They can act. They can behave in various ways. They have quite simple senses and they have a body that's organized not just superficially differently from ours, but in a deep sense, very differently from ours because their body has a kind of radial, circular or cup-like design rather than the left-right design that animals like us have. And nervous systems probably evolved, almost certainly evolved in an animal that didn't have the kind of left-right bilateral design that we have but perhaps in something like that radial design. In one of the early chapters in the book, I spend quite a bit of time in the water at Nelson Bay, which is just north of Newcastle in New South Wales, in a soft coral garden. In a soft coral garden, if you don't move too quickly, if you stay and watch uh, patiently for a while, you can see tiny 
radially organized behaviors on the part of these animals, tiny reaching and grasping behaviors, reaching for food in the water. And watching these behaviors is seeing a kind of present-day echo or indicator of a very important stage in the evolution of animals, which is the evolution of action and nervous systems and the senses that feed them. So in sponges and corals, we're looking at very distant relatives from us, an animal without a nervous system, and then some animals that do have nervous systems. They're not ancestors, they're present day beings, but they tell us something about what animals were like way back in these very early stages. Mm. Well, that's just so fascinating. And it does make me think of climate change and coral bleaching. And when you're talking about the nervous system of corals, does that mean that there are particularly ethical, there should be ethical concerns beyond just environmental concerns in terms of climate change leading to the destruction of corals, which is essentially an animal that has a nervous system? That's a good question. And I hadn't made that particular connection before with coral bleaching and the like. Right. It it takes us to one of the questions which is most enormous here and one that's not resolved in the book. And that question is, of the various animals around now, which are the ones that have the simplest nervous systems that nonetheless do have experience of some sort? Mm. You know, where does experience end if it ends as you move through animals with different kinds of nervous systems and then reach, for example, corals and anemones that do have nervous systems, but very small and simple ones. Uh, you know, I would love to give a really definite answer to this question, which I take to be the question, is there a kind of experience in a coral or is this an, a form of animal life that's just too simple from a neural point of view for even a tiny scrap or shred of experience to be present. My guess is, is the latter, that they are too neurally simple for experience to be present. But when I say that, I'm very aware that in a way it's asking the question in the wrong way because it's asking the question in a way that assumes it's a yes or no matter, that you, know, you either have experience or you don't, or you, you are conscious or you don't, and then the question will be, are shrimp conscious, are octopuses conscious, are corals conscious, are sponges conscious, yes or no in each case? I think it's very hard not to ask the question in that way initially at least, and in a very coarse-grained way, the answer I would tentatively give is that shrimp are conscious, octopuses are, fish are, corals no, sponges no. That's kind of the, the coarse-grained answer that I would give. But I'm very aware of the fact that to ask and answer the question that way is to treat the whole thing as, as a sort of rather binary matter. It's, you know, presence versus absence. And it may well be that in the future, the theoretical framework we'll have, the kind of philosophical slash scientific framework that we employ, will be one that recognises a kind of spectrum here where there's a kind of glimmering of something in the corals as well. Now, to say that is not to say that there's a glimmering of something experiential 
in absolutely everything. So one view that I reject is the view known as panpsychism, which is the idea that all matter, everything, grains of sand, rocks, absolutely everything, all physical existence has a kind of tiny scrap or glimmer of mentality. I don't think that's true. I think that we're pretty much talking about animals uh, when we're trying to work out where the where the gradient starts or where the spectrum has its 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 uh, low value but real cases. Now, if it turned out that corals had a kind of faint glimmer of something like experience, then yes, it's true that the deaths of coral would take on a somewhat different significance from the significance that they now have. I think that people probably now often think that the death of a coral, even though a coral is an animal, is in some ways ethically similar to the death of a tree, where a tree is a living thing, it can do well or badly, uh, it makes sense to ask if it's healthy or unhealthy, stressed or not stressed. But if it's true that a tree doesn't have experience, that things don't feel painful or good to it, then it's kind of in a, di a different place with respect to ethical questions than animals for which it does make sense to ask, you know, is this thing suffering right now? Is it in pain? I think probably most people would assume that, uh, and I guess as we talk about this, I think, right, I guess I would say this too at the moment, that trees and corals, even though a tree is a plant and a coral is an animal, are sort of in the same place or have the same standing with respect to these ethical questions. And that contrasts with what's appropriate to ask in the case of things like shrimp and crabs and octopuses and so on. But as you say, it may turn out that we end up revising our view of what's going on inside a coral as well. Mm, thank you for that answer. I know I put you on the spot there with the mental examination of it, but it did really spark in me that thought and it also was sparked because of something you mentioned in your discussions of crustaceans and that was also that there isn't really, um, I, I can't find the verbatim quote right now, but a shred of ethical consideration towards a number of crustaceans that we would eat and not really think about when we're killing them to be eaten. Yes, I think crustaceans, well, crustaceans plus octopuses are particularly important cases right now, but crustaceans more so because the numbers are, are so enormous. Mm. One of the surprises in recent biology and neuroscience is that there's pretty good evidence that crustaceans can feel pain in some cases. Hermit crabs are the cases where there's been quite convincing evidence of the presence of pain. Uh, in that kind of crustacean, but also in prawns and lobsters, there's a fair likelihood, I think, that these sorts of animals genuinely have experience. And that although you might think that eating animals that are sentient is fine, and I should say I think that in principle, in some circumstances, it is, it's at least appropriate to give them a totally different kind of consideration than the consideration that crustaceans have had typically up until now. Uh, it's routine in many contexts to boil these animals alive. Yeah. Um, I think that that starts to look like a, a very questionable practice, really something that should end 
uh, in the light of what's been discovered about those animals. There's a recent, there's a new paper actually, just just coming out as we speak almost uh, from Robin Crook's laboratory in San Francisco with even better evidence that octopuses can feel pain. This is a, a different level of, of sophistication with respect to the evidence than we have in the case of crustaceans. Although I think that the evidence is good in the case of crustaceans. So one of the things that the book ends up grappling with in the final chapters is just what kind of rethinking of our policies is important. I don't think that there's an easy but dramatic answer that we could embrace, such as, you know, every sentient animal has rights and should have its welfare respected, other things being equal. I think that's probably just oversimplifying too much. For example, the evidence for experience in insects is also pretty good. Uh, in some ways, not quite as good as it is in the case of crustaceans, which is quite an interesting fact because insects have, in many cases, much larger nervous systems, but their lives are very different. And to engage in a kind of full consideration of the welfare of insects would be uh, just you know, an extraordinarily radical shift in all sorts of our, our policies. That I think of as one of the sort of puzzling and hard cases in the case of crustaceans, I think in some ways it's puzzling and hard, but I think some things we could conclude fairly readily, such as we should not be boiling lobsters alive anymore. Well, it seems like a form of torture. If, if the science is showing that they can feel pain and they could, by that virtue, actually feel being burnt or boiled in water, it, to me, seems like that would be an obvious thing as well. I did want to touch on some of the anecdotes that you provide in the book. As you say, it's like a scuba dive, really. And one of the anecdotes I really enjoyed was your visiting this shrimp. I think it was a banded shrimp that you visited. Um, and you say it's kind of funny that you would go and visit a shrimp, but you actually do go to this same spot quite a number of times to revisit that shrimp and that's because they don't actually move all that far from the spot that they're living in. And I just wanted to, yeah, I just guess hear from you firsthand about your experiences observing that shrimp and interacting with it and what you learned and gleaned from, from it and also from visiting it more than once. It was a very surprising series of events. What happened was I went to a particular spot diving and came across a pair of these rather beautiful shrimp called banded shrimp, as you say. They're also known as barber's pole shrimps or barber pole shrimps. And that gives you a sense of their appearance where there's a kind of red and white stripe uh, going up and down like on an old-fashioned barber pole. And there were two of them in a particular spot fussing face-to-face -face endlessly, poking at each other. Uh, doing what looked like a sort of mixture of grooming and uh, communication of some kind. And I was very struck with how, how beautiful they were. And some months later, went back to the same spot and found just one shrimp there. And the thing about it that was fortunate for me, although not fortunate for the shrimp, was that it had lost one of its uh, very long claws. It was a one-armed shrimp. Uh, whereas this species usually has two spectacularly long claws. This one had lost one. 
And that meant that when I went back repeatedly, and I did begin to go back to that spot repeatedly, I could recognize this individual because it was missing the same arm in every case. And I since learned that these animals, banded shrimp, are quite long-lived. They can live for about five years or more in aquarium contexts. They mate for life. They have a single partner who they meet and live with and are intensely territorial. So the two that I had met on that first dive probably had spent much of their lives in just perhaps a single square meter or cubic meter of water, just roaming around, eating, behaving in this very small space. Then when I went back and found that one had disappeared and the remaining shrimp had just one arm, it was, of course, natural to, uh, well, natural in some ways, <laughs> to visit it uh, repeatedly. And it was an important uh, experience because I can't claim that shrimps have the kind of engagement with humans that, for example, an octopus or a bird will or something like that. But it did respond to me in quite interesting ways. So I would reach out and, and touch a feeler and it would, it would sometimes sort of come down very quickly and sort of look at me, stare at me. I learned afterwards that this particular behavior, the, the sort of coming down to look at me, probably relates to the fact that these are cleaner animals, that they clean parasites off the bodies of larger animals like fish and in, in this case also turtles. So it was probably coming down to inspect me as a possible client for cleaning. And I didn't realize that when this began to happen. So I should have offered, offered it some parasites to eat off me or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it certainly, it certainly had a kind of engagement with me as an object and as a living thing, it seemed. So in this sort of sequence of chapters in the book, the, the sponge we encounter, an animal with no nervous system, with these faint, tiny, quasi-behaviors, then the coral with genuine behaviors, with muscle, with these reaching, grasping behaviors, the next stop in the journey is the shrimp, and it's a totally different sort of thing you're encountering. You're encountering an animal that can move rapidly, that can see you quite well, they have quite good eyes, they treat you like an object of interest in a way that is, of course, you know, more or less unthinkable in the case of the animals in the, in the earlier chapters. And by the end of these visits, and it was a number of visits, I, I, I certainly had a certain amount of affection for this, this small animal. Yeah, well, so did I reading it. It uh, was really a lovely story, if I can use that language. I wanted to pick up on your reference or linking, I guess, between crustaceans, uh, you call them these amiable crustaceans, as well as insects who are their relatives in some ways. What is that link between a crustacean and an insect? Because, you know, you, you did mention before that this birth of consciousness comes from the ocean. And then, of course, we do eventually in the book get to land. And, uh, of course, there are vertebrates on land and um, fascinating insects and a whole group of insects that are very social um, and, you know, grouped together. So I guess I just wanted to understand that leap and that link between the two. Yes, there was, a, there was a particular moment when I, I got out of the water one time and it was after some visits, not so much with the banded shrimp, but with some hermit crabs. I'd been sort of hanging out with some hermit crabs 
also at Nelson Bay. And when you hang out with hermit crabs, also I knew some of the science about them. I knew that there was quite good evidence uh, for the existence of, of pain in hermit crabs, that they probably do have experience. Uh, they're amusingly fussy and fidgety little animals that are sort of wary of people but sometimes seem to sort of spy on you. <laughs> in the case of those animals, given also their size and the sort of way in which they move, it's quite natural to think of them as having genuine experience, as being conscious in this broad sense of the word. And then I got out of the water and just had a thought that hadn't occurred to me beforehand, which is that insects are a kind of evolutionary outgrowth from crustaceans. Now, the word crustacean is, in fact, no longer really an official biological word because it doesn't refer to a single branch of the evolutionary tree. And that fact is partly due to the fact that insects have kind of come out of that part of the tree. And we think of insects as being different from crustaceans. But insects are kind of a, a sort of land-based evolutionary development of an earlier form that is roughly speaking a crustacean form. Insects are terrestrial explorers for the most part, they're mostly land-based, that came out of marine crustaceans in evolutionary terms. Insects have large nervous systems uh, compared to crustaceans, even though they are in most cases, uh, or at least many cases, physically very small or smaller than crustaceans. And there was a kind of a gestalt switch when I thought to myself, right, if I've got used to the idea that crustaceans can be conscious in this broad sense, then given the relationships biologically between crustaceans and the vast numbers of insects around us on land, I have to take more seriously the idea that insects have genuine experiences as well. It's not for sure. It's not something implied from the facts about crustaceans. You have to think about the insects as their own thing and look at you know how they've evolved and what they have going on inside them. But it was a kind of a surprising shift. And one of the things I do in one of the later chapters is try to work out what kinds of quirks and novelties and peculiarities might have arisen in the lives and experiences of insects as a consequence of their transition from what's mostly a kind of slower paced and in many cases longer lived kind of way of being that they have in the sea to the kind of frantic, buzzing, often very short-lived kind of life they have on land. Well, it is really curious to think that they are related, you know, given that my initial response is that they are so different. But you do say that bees are sometimes compared to octopuses in a sort of cognitive contest between invertebrates. And then you go on to say that bees have much smaller brains, one cubic millimetre, but pack a great deal of complexity into that space. And that any talk of a contest makes little sense here, though. And then you go on to, I guess, talk about the, you know, the features of bees, for example, and honeybees, as well as bumblebees. But, you know, some people might think about consciousness and bees and, I guess, collective intelligence or group intelligence, and you use the word superorganism as well. And, of course, ants are similarly grouped together and have, you know, a lot of social interactions. And, you know, social interactions is, you know, one of those things that you examine. So I wondered where you got to, particularly on land and looking at insects uh, like bees, in terms of consciousness and 
and how that might operate and, you know, whether they might experience things like pain and and what the implications are, particularly when we look at organisms and um, species that are particularly social and have a lot of complexity in their interactions. Yes. Starting with just the bee as individual, as you say, they have these they have these quite small brains in, in, in physical terms, cubic millimetre, but really extraordinary complexity packed into that, into that tiny space. The last few years has seen a sequence of experiments on what bees can do that have in common the fact that they show that bees are able to handle surprisingly abstract relationships between things that they sense. They're very good at dealing with abstract patterns learning how to deal with the quite logically complicated features of situations that they can be confronted with, much more so than octopuses. I think that bees are really the not so much the masters but the mistresses of abstraction among invertebrates. Now, here we're just talking about the individual bee. And as you say, there's also the question of the collective which is a very, it's a big question in the case of honeybees, especially where you have this very socially organized unit, the hive or colony that does behave a bit like an organism in some ways and might be taken to have a kind of something like a mind of its own. Now here I have to say that all I could manage in this book, Metazoa, was to think about the individual one at a time, and didn't really even grapple with the social. But there will be a third book in the series after Other Minds and then Metazoa, and that one's going to have to think about these collective cases, collective intelligence, group intelligence, what kind of relationship there is between the actions and the sensing and the processing of the individual bee or ant or human being, and what is going on at the level of the colony or the collective or the social group. I, this is something I have to work out. I, I'm, I embrace the question, but I've been saving it for book three. Yeah, well, it does seem like uh, it would take a whole book to get to that point, um, to understand it and fully give it the recognition and depth and nuance that it deserves. I guess I want to conclude this conversation by looking at your conclusion and um, what you discuss at the end of the book and the journey that you bring us through in terms of your thinking and how you bring us on that that philosophical thought journey and you keep reminding us of where we've come from, how things have progressed, and then I guess where we end up. So from that that great function of the book, but also from an, an experience right now of talking about it, we've obviously touched on some of the key moments um, and you've done that really beautifully but from your perspective having looked at this picture you know really broadly and having thought about it in depth for so long where do you really get to in terms of consciousness in animals Uh, when we get to the land when we think about them both in the sea and the land what concluding observations do you make and what do you really want us the reader to take away from your thinking about this and obviously the science that supports it? The first takeaway or the first message, a conclusion that I came away with myself is the idea that there's a lot more experience around us than I had thought and I think that, that, that many people think. 
there's a lot more complexity in animal lives and a lot more likely experience in those lives all around us than I had supposed. From there, some of the other takeaways are sort of hard to hard to go through quickly without us embarking on a whole additional conversation. One would be the idea that living activity, what's going on inside cells and brains and animals, is it's material, it's physical. The, the, the book winds up, I think, fairly squarely supporting a materialist picture. But there's a kind of peculiarity in the sorts of physical things going on within living systems and also in particular within nervous systems that I think has not been appreciated enough when thinking about the mind-body problem and also when thinking about what kind of thing an animal is and what kind of thing animal life is. So I came away from it thinking differently about the sort of internal activities that are characteristic of animal life, thinking differently about the amount of experience around us and the depth in historical time of the evolutionary processes that that gave rise to experience. Those would be two of the two of the main things I would mention. And then a whole bunch of other questions. Uh, I mentioned that the third book will deal with groups as well as individuals. The third book will also have quite a lot about the, roughly speaking, the policy side, how we should rethink our relationships to other animals, how we should rethink our relationship to the environment in general, what kind of, what kind of inhabitant slash custodians we might be of the earth as a whole, and so on. So there were a lot of sort of questions and projects coming out of it, as well as those couple of conclusions or messages. Mm. Well, I've got to say, I have taken a lot from this book and it certainly has challenged me and challenged my preconceptions about what an animal is, what an animal experience might be, what levels of consciousness might exist in the animal world and also the relationship between animals and human beings as they are now, as well as obviously these ethical considerations that you'll look to in the future in more depth. And I guess that's something that I really value about the study of philosophy and the history and philosophy of science is this ability to provide a different lens and also a, a kind of a humanistic lens to science and also sometimes take away our human biases that keep on interfering with some of the conceptions we have of animals and, you know, sometimes oversimplifying them or, or projecting human experiences onto animals. So thank you so much for challenging me and I'm sure many others to think about uh, animals in the animal world and also of consciousness. And uh, I can't wait to read the third book. Congratulations on what is a really wonderful piece of scholarship and thinking. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you too. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. You are tuned in to this show, Uncommon Sense. I'm Amy Mullins. It's so wonderful to be with you this Tuesday morning between 9am and noon. And it's uh, really exciting for me to be welcoming back one of my favourite regular guests. That's why he's so regular. 
Brendan Wintle, who is a professor in conservation ecology at the University of Melbourne, and he's also uh, the director of the Threatened Species Recovery Hub. And Brendan, as you can tell from his uh, background, is an expert in conservation and also um, protecting species, threatened species, and uh, particularly those that are critically endangered, and has a really great um, outlook and oversight of so many different areas and so many different uh, fields of research within his remit. So that's why he's uh, such a great person. He's got um, eyes and minds across all areas, which means we can uh, really go into some of this uh, final report, which has just been delivered by uh, Graham Samuel. He was the one who conducted this independent review of the EPBC Act, the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is really the main environment law at a federal level, and it does interact with states and how they conduct uh, certain things like approvals and also native forest logging, uh, for example, like regional forestry agreements. So it really is a really pivotal piece of legislation, as was this independent review, of which we have been discussing it in the past, and I have done so um, with Brendan and other environment lawyers that I've chatted with. And it's great now that we finally have this final report. So I'm going to, without further ado, welcome Brendan, and thank you so much for joining me again. Well, thanks, Amy. It's great to be here, as always. Um, well, it'll be nice when we can do the studio again, but, uh, yeah, it's great to, to, go to chat again. And, I, I, and look, I must remember to um, employ you to do my next annual review of performance because that, I, that was a very generous introduction. Thank you. Oh, well, you deserve <laughs> it. Um, and I've got to say I always really enjoy speaking with you and we often aren't necessarily talking about greatly uplifting subjects, although mm -hmm. sometimes we are. Um, but this is something which, you know, to this show and to so many people who support Triple R, they really care about the environment and they really care about plants, animals, fungi, the natural world. And so I know that this is something that a lot of people would really like to understand better, myself included, in terms of the significance of this independent review to begin with, maybe we can give that background again, um, in terms of why this review was conducted. It was conducted by Graham Samuel, who is uh, quite a well-known businessman, and he's um, also been involved in regulation of certain sectors, um, particularly mm. competition. So mm. he has a background in assessing things. He isn't necessarily um, an environmentalist of any kind that we no. know of, um, no. but that's not what the purpose was. It was to have an independent reviewer. So yeah. first up, looking at this uh, final report, which did draw on 30,000 public submissions, mm. what, how did you and the rest of, you know, the scientific community and other in interested parties, including environmental lawyers, for example, how did they find this independent review and the process? And did you feel like when you were looking at this final report that mm. some of the submissions and recommendations made by the public and by interested parties were really listened to and drawn on. 
Yeah, great. Well, look, um, first of all, you're right. I mean, uh, you know, for people who are interested in the environment, interested in the plight of threatened species and trying to uh, to halt the um, or, or slow the extinction crisis, this is a really important report. Uh, the EPBC Act, the uh, it's our key uh, environmental piece of environmental legislation. And, of course, talking about legislation can get a little dry, uh, but this is really central to uh, the outcomes for the environment and threatened species in Australia. So it is an important moment and it was an important review. Professor Samuel isn't an environment person, but he did, uh, he has, you know, incredible experience in administrative matters and and, uh, and dealing with regulation. And uh, in many ways, I think not coming encumbered with uh, a lot of let's say, obvious or public baggage around environment was helpful. That allowed him mm. to really focus in on the fundamental uh, elements of, uh, you know, the legislation, why we have it and how it's working. And, and you know, his findings were pretty stark. Even his draft report that came out uh, quite a few months ago uh, made it pretty clear that... Um, uh, things weren't working out for the environment and threatened species, uh, and the Act is uh, is failing uh, in its objectives to ensure the long-term persistence of species and ecosystems. Uh, and that came through very clearly in the report. Uh, I think, you know, to your question about how the environmental science world, the conservation science world has responded, generally I think pretty positively. We were very um, pleased to have a very frank uh, and well, I guess brutal in many ways, assessment of uh, the performance of the Act and in, in many ways performance of the Commonwealth Government in implementing the Act. And a lot of the the challenges and the criticisms and then the avenues for reform that he's recommended really come down to the administration of the Act uh, and fixing the big problems that we have about enforcement uh, and about uh, transparency and about data and information. Uh, so, yeah, a good report all in all and uh, and some really good, strong recommendations. Mm. Well, I'd love to read out a couple of lines from the report, which I think really demonstrate what you're just saying about um, just how strong, strongly worded uh, Graham Samuel's report is. It says that Australia's natural environment and iconic places are in an overall state of decline and are under increasing threat. The environment is not, is not sufficiently resilient to withstand current, emerging or future threats, including climate change. The environmental trajectory is currently unsustainable. The EPBC Act does not clearly outline its intended outcomes and the environment has suffered from two decades of failing to continuously improve the law and its implementation. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, that is pretty damning. Pretty on clear all governments, you know, yeah, yeah. whether it's Labor or the Coalition Absolutely. and also, of course, the willingness of crossbenchers and others to participate in reforms to the Act as well. It seems like it's been a bit of a hodgepodge, yeah. a kind of, yeah, yeah a, a mixed up. Um, <clears throat> and, and, I mean, the statement that, that it didn't really have an intention, it didn't show that there were, um, it didn't outline its intended outcome. Seems like it would be a, a pretty basic part of an act relating to the environment. Um, what do you think the intended outcome should be, or what is Graham, Graham Samuel saying the yeah. intended outcome of this act should be? 
Look, I think it's probably, to me, that's probably one of the more difficult um, criticisms because the Act clearly does uh, require uh, actions to to avoid major impacts on species. And clearly the fundamental objective underneath that is to... Um, stop species from declining towards extinction. Uh, a lot of the uh, administration of the Act is around assessing uh, the risk of extinction for species and trying to determine, um, you know, what needs to be done to recover them. So, to be honest, I feel it's a tiny bit of a fussy criticism. I think we all kind of knew that the EPBC Act was about trying to stop species go extinct. I think what he's getting towards there is that we need to have specific targets. We need thresholds and standards for the outcomes that we're seeking for threatened species and ecosystems and the environment more generally, uh, and that they could then be measurable and enforceable uh, in, in, a, in a transparent way. And I think this is uh, I think this is a really important uh, point that, and, and a lot of his push towards the, the development of national environmental standards uh, as a, a set of, of sort of outcomes that we're seeking uh, that, that, that we can be measured against is a really good step. So, uh, so I think this is good. But of course, you know, the act in itself was kind of good and we are in a better place now than we would have been without it. Uh, that's something that I think we probably should remember as a bit of context here. Um, but unfortunately, it was too susceptible to uh, the, the perils of ministerial discretion uh, and it was able to be ignored and, and it didn't specify enough about what needed to be measured and what needed to be done when you got a bad measurement, whether it was for species declines or ecosystem declines or other environmental impacts. So I think he's asking for more specific objectives, more specific goals uh, that will be, um, that we will try and achieve through the development of these national environmental standards. So, mm. yeah, so I think that's, you know, I think that's, that is good and important, but I think it is really important to focus in a bit more tightly on some of his more specific criticisms. So you've, you know, you've outlined the sort of headline, um, the headline uh, kind of message. Picture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, he, he really talks about a failure of uh, the government to properly resource enforcement, lack of independence and oversight, really high levels of ministerial discretion, really opaque administrative processes so that it's hard to know, you know, what's been approved, where and how. And in fact, just to a failure to actually trigger the act in many instances, and that's about audit and 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 um, and reporting. So uh, there was some good work recently done, led out of the University of Queensland. Uh, basically, says that um, ninety three percent of the 7.7 million hectares of land that's been habitat, sorry, for threatened species that's been destroyed since the act was enacted, was never triggered the act at all. So 93%, including, you know, a million hectares of key koala habitat, for example. So, you know, that's about, it's not really about the act. If you trigger, uh, if you'd have triggered those, they'd been assessed, mind you, 99% of things that were assessed were approved. At least there was, you know, there were uh, functions under the act to try and make sure that the damage or mitigate some of the damage. But 93% of, of clearing never actually triggered 
the Act, and most of that is in the agriculture sector, clearing for pasture, clearing to create new uh, or uh, rejuvenated agricultural land. Mm, that is utterly shocking and not surprising, but shocking. Mm. Um, it does remind me because I just actually spoke to Charles Massey last week and we were talking about regenerative agriculture and he was commenting on the fact that land clearing had led to um, the migration of birds from woodlands uh, down to his farm because he'd mm. actually been rebuilding his farm and not clearing and they were actually restoring vegetation, um, mm. which they couldn't do completely. But it does remind me, and it is important to remember that um, role of agriculture, but also the role of the state governments yeah. in you know, obviously regulating yes. that as well. Yeah. Um, I really am keen to understand, you know, you talk about that transparency or lack of transparency in reviews, that they're quite opaque. Um, mm. No doubt they take quite a lot of time because it doesn't seem like they are often timely. I guess it depends on the situation. Yeah. Um, but how are these like government departments? Is it like the Department of Health and not health environment that mm that t undertakes these reviews, that public servants are um, making these assessments and then recommending certain decisions to the minister and the minister can either accept or reject these decisions? Is that how that currently yeah, works? That's the idea. Um, and if you had enough uh, of uh, those assessors with the right qualifications and experience uh, so that their assessments could be done with the best available information, you know, that process could work. Uh, obviously, there's the problem of the ministerial um, discretion slash meddling. Uh, uh, that that means that even sometimes when a, a, uh, a an officer of the government recommends a particular thing in an initial uh, assessment, uh, for example, assessments around um, Toondah Harbour, uh, there's millions of them that we could go through. Um, the minister can override those assessments even against the advice of, his, of their own department. So um, that's one of the problems. Of course, and and Professor Samuel reiterates this in a democracy. Uh, sometimes it is okay for the minister to have discretion, but only in very rare circumstances. And and with very high transparency, there needs to be a clear documentation, a public documentation of why, uh, for example, the advice of experts or a government department had to be ignored in the public benefit. Um, so that's one thing that, that he does say. He says that that's been used far too much. It's been far too opaque. Um, and, if, and, and if there is going to be ministerial discretion in the future, it needs to be much more transparent so that everybody can see uh, and judge and decide with their votes whether that was okay. Uh, and so I think that the accountability uh, is a really key part of the, the Samuel's recommendations. And, and you know, uh, he was recommending an Environmental Assurance Commissioner and an Office of Compliance and Enforcement um, that would be with the Commonwealth, which I know sounds a little bit like the fox in the hen house, but, you're, but keeping in mind that they're looking at... Um, giving a lot of the powers for the actual management of the Act uh, and the implementation of environmental standards to the states. So that would then make an environmental compliance unit within the Commonwealth, assuming it was properly resourced, actually more likely to act on uh, approvals and, um, and developments that were being handled by the states. So in a way, I think that separation, so that separation of those powers has some potential. 
Um, but it all comes down to how well the recommendations of this review are actually implemented and, and whether it's done as a whole package or whether the government just cherry-picks a few things that, that it likes the look of and ignores all the other stuff and how well-resourced the ultimate package is because there's a, a whole lot of stuff in there that Graham Samuel recommends that's good about improved planning to avoid cumulative impacts, what we call death by a thousand cuts, a thousand little approvals ultimately leading to a big impact on a species. Um, all of that stuff to do, do what he's saying needs to be done properly is going to cost money. And unfortunately, uh, the current government doesn't have a great track record. And indeed, successive Commonwealth governments have had a pretty bad track record in terms of resourcing uh, environmental management and the and the um, implementation of the Act. Mm. Gosh, you have provided so much insight uh, already around this. I really appreciate what you've just been telling us. Um, I was looking at the proposed national environmental standards or at least what they should include. I think um, he was suggesting that the review would be recommending that they be developed and implemented, um, but that they should include, and these are just some of them, I won't read everything out, um, matters of national environmental significance, Commonwealth actions and actions involving the Commonwealth land, uh, also transparent processes and robust decisions. Um, I won't read out the subheadings of that. Um, interestingly, and obviously a welcome thing is Indigenous engagement and participation mm. in decision-making, mm. uh, compliance and enforcement, as you've said, their environmental monitoring and evaluation of outcomes, environmental restorations, including those uh, controversial things called offsets mm. um, and also wildlife permits and trade. Now, they're just some of the, I guess, bullet points of where he thinks these nas national standards should go. Mm. Um, obviously, they would need to be developed uh, in more detail. But yeah. from your perspective, both those that broad list of areas, but also the the kind of offices that they're proposing to set up, you know, do you think that if it was implemented in full um, with these types of things, with appropriate engagement, with the right um, goals and then uh, KPIs and then reviews and all that kind of thing, would you agree that you know there seems to be I don't know, is there much lacking from the from that? report and from those? No, look, I think it's a pretty good list, uh, to be honest, and it depends on uh, how much of, uh, how much richness, detail and specificity gets into uh, those standards that are mm. named. Um, for example, you know, you could say, well, there, there should be an environmental monitoring and evaluation of outcomes standard. Um, well, how rigorous is it going to require the monitoring to be? What kind of minimum um, confidence would you need, uh, which has resourcing implications? What kind of minimum confidence would you need to uh, demonstrate that we were actually achieving outcomes underneath under under the Act uh, for matters of national environmental significance? Which for everybody basically just means the species that have been listed as um, you know at risk of extinction, all the threatened ecological communities that have been listed, and some, some sites, heritage places and, and other things. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, yes, I think the list is pretty complete um, and I think it, you know, whether it's enough is really a question about how good the standards look um, when they're written 
and uh, you know making sure that there's no loopholes. Now, I was uh, involved through this process when developing some draft standards for monitoring evaluation, uh, data and information, and, and the, mat- the overarching matters of national environmental significance standard. Look, you could see the different pressures and forces that were at play in that drafting process, the different stakeholders pushing and shoving in different directions. I felt like we weren't getting far off uh, some decent standards. Uh, And one of the, I guess, the the clever aspect of all this is that Professor Samuel knows that, um, you know, the Commonwealth will probably be uh, okay with developing fairly rigorous and and um, and uh, comprehensive standards because, by and large, they're not going to have to implement them. They're going to have to be implemented by the states under the devolution bill. So, um, you know, uh, but maybe that's the kind of uh, role that the Commonwealth should be playing because at the moment with the Commonwealth as the sort of, you know, the approver and the monitor of outcomes, which they just don't do, um, it's not working. So maybe it is better that you give that over to uh, the states who are uh, responsible in our federal federal system for the management of land, um, which is the key thing, um, except under specific circumstances of, of Commonwealth lands and airports and, you know, World Heritage sites and stuff like that. Basically, it's a state responsibility. Of course, it makes sense for the states to be making those decisions as long as there is that national oversight so that when you get Campbell Newman in power in Queensland, there's only so much damage that they can do in a certain amount of time uh, that would be – and that there would be recourse uh, for the Commonwealth to say, well, actually, no, you're failing under our standards, so we're actually going to remove the um, powers of your state to make those decisions, etc. So all of that legal stuff uh, about which I am not an expert, uh, is going to be so important in all of this. Yeah, and that shift towards the states playing a more significant role, I mean, that's something that Susan Lee, the Environment Minister, had talked about at the interim report release and the government, the federal government had kind of said, well, these are the things that we already want to do and so they put together you know, a proposed plan before the final report was even released. Mm. Has their response changed at all in terms of that proposed plan and what they want to do? Have they indicated whether Mm. they would do what you said, either cherry pick certain recommendations or actually implement what Samuels recommends? It's still a bit early days. Uh, they have stepped back uh, from a. a they, they were proposing a really rapid uh, schedule for devolving powers to the states, and they'd already started to strike up deals with WA. And um, uh, I think they've pulled back on that, uh, largely because they couldn't get that past the crossbenches in the Senate. It became clear, um, and so. They're now saying, no, we will wait for the standards to be developed. We'll get the systems in place, uh, you know, so that all the rules are going to be very clear and then we'll put forward the bill for for devolving those powers to the states. But, uh, look, it's a very live game. uh, And if the numbers change, uh, 
they may change their approach there. Let's see. Uh, but at the moment, I think, you know, hopefully we can assume that uh, we're going to have the development of standards. We're going to have some of these key roles in place, the Assurance Commissioner, the Office of Compliance, uh, the um, Environmentally Sustainable Development uh, Committee, a couple of key things that he's recommended. If they're in place and the standards are set and agreed and, and we think they look okay, then I think we'll probably all be some, somewhat looking forward to uh, the states being able to pick this up. I think it actually might make the whole process a bit smoother and it will also draw a sharper attention to the performance of the states and give that accountability to the states because, as you say, I think this hasn't just been a failure over the last two or three decades of the Commonwealth. It's been a failure of every every jurisdiction yeah. uh, and, it, and, in fact, our society as a whole and, and the states have got a big role to play there. So, um, so yes, I think that in the end, I, th I don't think that's such a bad move. Mm. Brendan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this. I feel like I'm far more informed and have a better understanding of what this really means for conservation. So I'm so grateful to you again for coming back to chat with us about this and I hope we can pick it up again when things continue to progress. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting um, uh, interesting story to watch. So, uh, yeah, I'll look forward to chatting with you again and thanks for having me, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.